Seven Steps to Release. There is one and only one all-sufficient basis for every provision of God's mercy: the exchange that took place on the cross. In the previous chapter, eight main aspects were summarized: one, Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven; two, Jesus was wounded that we might be healed; three, Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness. That we might become righteous with His righteousness. Four, Jesus died our death that we might share His life. Five, Jesus became poor with our poverty that we might become rich with His riches. Six, Jesus bore our shame that we might share His glory. Seven, Jesus endured our rejection that we might have His acceptance as children of God. Eight, Jesus became a curse that we might receive a blessing. This list is not complete. There are other aspects of the exchange that could be added, but all of them are different facets of the provision God has made through the sacrifice of Jesus. The Bible sums them up in one grand, all-inclusive word: salvation. Christians often limit salvation to the experience of having one's sins forgiven and being born again. Wonderful though this is, however, it is only the first part of the total salvation revealed in the New Testament. The full scope of salvation is obscured, at least in part, by problems of translation. In the original Greek text of the New Testament, the verb sozo, normally translated to save, is also used in a variety of ways that go beyond the forgiveness of sins. It is used, for instance. In many cases of people being physically healed, it is also used of a person being delivered from demons, and of a dead person being brought back to life. In the case of Lazarus, it is used of recovering from a fatal illness. In Second Timothy chapter four, verse eighteen, Paul uses the same word to describe God's ongoing preservation and protection from evil, which will extend throughout his life. The total outworking of salvation includes every part of man's being. It is beautifully summed up in Paul's prayer in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse twenty-three. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation includes the total human personality, spirit, soul, and body. And it is consummated only by the resurrection of the body at the return of Christ. No one enters into all the varied provisions of salvation simultaneously, however, or by one single transaction. It is normal to progress by stages from one provision to the next. Many Christians never go beyond receiving forgiveness of their sins. They are not aware of the many other provisions that are freely available to them. The order in which a person receives the various provisions is determined by the sovereignty of God, who deals with all of us as individuals. The starting point, generally, is forgiveness of sins, but not always. In the earthly ministry of Jesus, people often receive physical healing first, and then forgiveness of their sins. This can still happen today. In 1968, my own wife Ruth. While still single and living as a practicing Jewess, had lain sick in bed for many weeks. Then she received a miraculous visitation from Jesus in her bedroom and was instantly and totally healed.
but it was two years later before she recognized her need to have her sins forgiven. Only then was she born again. When we come to God on the basis of Christ's sacrifice for us, we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We cannot impose our priorities upon God, but we must let Him work with us in the order He chooses. A person may, for instance, be determined to seek financial prosperity, whereas God's first priority for him is righteousness. If he stubbornly insists on claiming prosperity before righteousness, he may not receive either. Again, a person may seek physical healing, not knowing that the root of his physical sickness is an inner emotional problem, such as rejection or grief or insecurity. In response, God will move to bring the emotional healing that is needed. If the person does not open himself up to this, however, but continues to beg merely for physical healing, he may in the end receive no healing at all, either physical or emotional. Sometimes God seeks to reveal to us a provision of salvation that is our most urgent need, and yet we are not aware of it. This applies particularly to the provision for release from a curse. Very often, a curse over a person's life is the unsuspected barrier that holds him back from the other provisions of salvation. Normally, this barrier must be dealt with first before other needs can be met. This is the provision we will now focus upon. The exchange from curse to blessing. At this point, we are confronted by precisely the same issues Moses put before the Israelites as they were preparing to enter the land of Canaan. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life, so that you and your children may live. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. The issues were so solemn and so far-reaching in their consequences that Moses called heaven and earth to witness Israel's response. The alternatives were clear. Life and blessings on the one hand, death and curses on the other. God required the Israelites to make their own choice. He urged them to make the right choice, life and blessings, but he would not make the choice for them. He also reminded them that the choice they made would affect not merely their own lives, but also the lives of their descendants. This emerges once again as a characteristic feature of both blessings and curses. They continue from generation to generation. The choice that Israel made at that time determined their destiny. The same is true for us today. God sets before us precisely the same alternative, life and blessings, or death and curses. He leaves it to us to choose. Like Israel, we determine our destiny by the choice we make. Our choice may also affect the destiny of our descendants. I remember when I was first confronted by those words of Moses. As I realized that God required a response from me, I was overawed. God was waiting for me to choose. I could not evade the issue. Not to choose was, in effect, to make the wrong choice. I thank God that he gave me the grace to make the right choice. Never. In all the years since then, have I regretted it? God soon began to show me, however, the implications of my choice. 
I had passed through a door leading to a lifetime walk of faith and obedience, from which there was no turning back. All who desire to pass from curse to blessing must go through the same door. First, there must be a clear recognition of the issues God sets before us. Then there must be a simple, positive response. Lord, on the basis of your word, I make my response. I refuse death and curses, and I choose life and blessings. Once we have made this choice, we can go on to claim release from any curses over our lives. What are the steps that we must take for this? There is no one set pattern that everyone must follow. In bringing people to the point of release, however, I have found it helpful to lead them through the seven stages outlined next. You may be approaching this issue from the perspective of one who is concerned to help or counsel others. To receive the full benefit of this instruction, however, I recommend that you put yourself mentally in the place of the person who needs release. In so doing, you may discover that is where you actually are. One, confess your faith in Christ and in His sacrifice on your behalf. In Romans chapter nine, verses nine and ten. Paul explains that there are two essential conditions for receiving the benefits of Christ's sacrifice: to believe in the heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and confess with the mouth that He is Lord. Faith in the heart is not fully effective until it has been completed by confession with the mouth. Literally, the word "confess" means to say the same as. In the context of biblical faith, confession means. Saying with our mouth what God has already said in His Word, in Hebrews chapter three verse one, Jesus is called the High Priest of our confession. When we make the right scriptural confession concerning Him, it releases His priestly ministry on our behalf. To receive the benefits of Christ's sacrifice, we need to make our confession specific and personal. For example, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that You are the Son of God. And the only way to God, and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. Two, repent of all your rebellion and your sins. There may have been many external factors, even going back to previous generations, that have contributed to the curse over your life. Nevertheless, the root of all your problems lies within yourself. It is summed up in that one word, Avon. Iniquity, your rebellious attitude toward God and the sins that have resulted from it. For this, you must accept personal responsibility. Before you can receive God's mercy, therefore, He requires that you repent. This must be a deliberate decision on your part. You lay down your rebellion and submit yourself without reservation to all that God requires of you. Person who has truly repented. No longer argues with God. The New Testament leaves no room for faith that bypasses repentance. When John the Baptist came to prepare the way before Jesus, the first word in his message was "Repent." Matthew chapter three verse two. Later, when Jesus commenced his public ministry, he took up where John had left off: "Repent and believe in the gospel." Mark chapter one verse fifteen. Without repentance. No effective faith is possible. Many professing Christians are continually struggling for faith, 
because they have never fulfilled the prior condition of repentance. Consequently, they never receive the full benefits of Christ's sacrifice. Here is a suggested confession that expresses the repentance that God demands. I give up all my rebellion and all my sin, and I submit myself to you as my Lord. 3. Claim Forgiveness of All Sins The great barrier that keeps God's blessing out of our lives is unforgiven sin. God has already made provision for our sins to be forgiven, but he will not do this until we confess them. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, verse 9 God is faithful to do this because he has given us his promise, and he always keeps his promise. He is also just because the full penalty for our sins has already been paid by Jesus. It may be that God has shown you certain sins that opened you up to a curse. If so, make a specific confession of those sins. It's also possible that a curse has come upon you because of sins committed by your ancestors, especially idolatry or the occult. You do not bear the guilt of sins your ancestors committed but you may be affected in various ways by the consequences of their sins. If you know this to be the case, ask God also for release from those consequences. Here is a suitable prayer that covers this. I confess all my sins before you and ask for your forgiveness, especially for any sins that exposed me to a curse. Release me also from the consequences of my ancestors' sins. Four. Forgive all other people who have ever harmed you or wronged you. Another great barrier that can keep God's blessing out of our lives is unforgiveness in our hearts toward other people. In Mark chapter 11 verse 25, Jesus put his finger on this as something that we must deal with if we expect God to answer our prayers. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. The same principle runs all through the New Testament. If we want God to forgive us, we must be prepared to forgive others. Forgiving another person is not primarily an emotion, it is a decision. I sometimes illustrate this with a little parable. You have in your hand IOUs from another person that total $10,000. In heaven, however, God has in his hand IOUs from you to him in the amount of $10 million. God makes you an offer. You tear up the IOUs in your hand, and I'll tear up the IOUs in mine. On the other hand, if you hold on to your IOUs, I'll hold on to mine. Understood in this way, forgiving another person is not a tremendous sacrifice. It is merely enlightened self-interest. Anyone who is not willing to cancel a debt of $10,000 in order to have his own debt of $10 million cancelled is lacking in business sense. God may now be bringing to your mind some person or persons whom you need to forgive. If so, you can look to the Holy Spirit for help. He will prompt you to make the right decisions, but he will not make them for you. When you feel his prompting, respond. Make a clear-cut decision to forgive, then verbalize your decision. Say out loud, Lord, I forgive, and name the person or persons involved.
the ones you find it hardest to name are the ones you most need to forgive. Here are some simple words you can use. By a decision of my will, I forgive all who have harmed me or wronged me, just as I want God to forgive me. In particular, I forgive, name the person or persons. 5. Renounce all contact with anything occult or satanic. Before you come to the actual prayer of release, there is one further important area that must be dealt with. All contact with anything occult or satanic. This includes a very wide range of activities and practices. If you have been involved at any time in such activities or practices, you have crossed an invisible border into the kingdom of Satan. Since that time, whether you know it or not, Satan has regarded you as one of his subjects. He considers that he has a legal claim to you, since the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan are in total opposition to one another. You cannot enjoy the full rights and benefits of a citizen in God's kingdom until you have finally and forever severed all connection with Satan and totally cancelled any claim he may have against you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 and 15, Paul stresses the necessity of a complete break with Satan's kingdom. What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, that is Satan? In verse 17, he concludes with a direct charge from the Lord himself. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Making this break requires also that you deal with any contact objects, that is, objects that would still link you with Satan. This could include many different items. In my case, as I related in chapter 2, it was the Chinese dragons I had inherited. If you have any doubts about how this might apply in your situation, ask God to put his finger on anything that is offensive to him. Then get rid of it in the most effective way. Burn it, smash it, throw it into deep water, or whatever. If you are ready to make this total break with Satan and his kingdom, here is an appropriate way to affirm it. I renounce all contact with anything occult or satanic. If I have any contact objects, I commit myself to destroy them. I cancel all Satan's claims against me. 6. You are now ready to pray the prayer of release from any curse. If you have been willing to commit yourself to each of the preceding five steps, you are now at the place where you can pray the actual prayer of release from any curse over your life. But remember, there is only one basis upon which God offers his mercy the exchange that took place when Jesus died on the cross. Indeed, in that exchange was provision for release from every curse. By being hanged on a cross, Jesus became a curse with every curse that could ever come upon you, that you in turn might be released from every curse and receive God's blessing in its place. It is important that you base your faith solely upon what Jesus obtained for you through his sacrifice on the cross. You do not have to earn your release. You do not have to be worthy. If you come to God with thoughts like that, you will have no solid basis for your faith. God responds to us only on the basis of what Jesus has done on our behalf, not of any merits we may fancy we have in ourselves. If you pray with this basis for your faith, your prayer should end not merely with asking, but with actually receiving.
In Mark chapter 11 verse 24, Jesus established this as a principle. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. In this kind of prayer there are two distinct stages, related as cause and effect, receiving and having. Receiving is the cause from which having follows as the effect. Receiving is in the past tense, having is in the future. Receiving takes place when we pray, then having follows at a time and in a way determined by God's sovereignty. But the principle Jesus emphasizes is this. If we do not receive at the time we pray, we have no assurance that we will ever have. Here is a prayer that would be appropriate. You might first listen through this prayer and then listen on for further instructions. Lord Jesus, I believe that on the cross you took on yourself every curse that could ever come upon me. So I ask you now to release me from every curse over my life. In your name, Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, I now receive my release, and I thank you for it. Now pause for a moment. Before you pray this prayer of release, you would be wise to reaffirm each of the five preceding confessions you have already made. To make this easier for you, they are repeated next, but without any added comments or explanation. In prayer, repeat these words deliberately with undivided attention. If you feel uncertainty about any section, go back and listen to it again. Identify yourself with the words you pray. By the time you have finished, you should have a sense that you have brought yourself to God with the words you have prayed. Then go straight on into the prayer of release, which is repeated at the end. Here, then, is the complete prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you are the Son of God and the only way to God, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. I give up all my rebellion and all my sin, and I submit myself to you as my Lord. I confess all my sins before you and ask for your forgiveness, especially for any sins that exposed me to a curse. Release me also from the consequences of my ancestors' sins. By a decision of my will, I forgive all who have harmed me or wronged me, just as I want God to forgive me. In particular, I forgive. I renounce all contact with anything occult or satanic. If I have any contact objects, I commit myself to destroy them. I cancel all Satan's claims against me. Lord Jesus, I believe that on the cross you took on yourself every curse that could ever come upon me. So I ask you now to release me from every curse over my life. In your name, Lord Jesus Christ. By faith I now receive my release, and I thank you for it. Now, don't stop at saying thank you just once or twice. Your mind cannot grasp a fraction of what you have asked God to do for you, but respond to God with your heart. This could be the time to release hurts or pressures or inhibitions that have built up inside you over the years. If a dam breaks inside you, don't try to hold back the tears that are the outflow of your heart. Don't be held back by self-consciousness or embarrassment. God has known all along the things that you kept shut up inside you, and he is not the least embarrassed by them. So why should you be? Tell God how much you really love him. The more you express your love, the more real it will become to you. 
On the other hand, there is no set pattern for responding to God that everyone has to follow. The key to release is not some particular type of response. Faith can be expressed in many different ways. Just be your real self with God. Open your whole being to God's love as a flower opens its petals to the sun. 7. Now believe that you have received, and go on in God's blessing. Do not try at this stage to analyze what form the blessing will take, or how God will impart it to you. Leave that in God's hands. Let Him do it just how and when He will. You do not have to concern yourself with that. Your part is simply to open yourself, without reservation, to all that God wants to do in you and for you through His blessing. Remember that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. So do not limit God by doing only what you think. Here is a simple form of words that you can use. Lord, I now open myself to receive your blessing in every way you want to impart it to me. It will be exciting for you to see just how God will respond. 19. From Shadows to Sunlight If you followed the instructions in the previous chapter, you have crossed an invisible boundary. Behind you now is a territory overshadowed by curses of many different kinds and from many different sources. Before you lies a territory made bright by the sunshine of God's blessings. Before you go any further, cast your mind back to the summary of the list Moses gave in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 2 through 13. Exaltation, health, reproductiveness, prosperity, victory, God's favor. These are all parts of your inheritance in Christ, waiting for you to explore and to claim. It could help you to repeat these words. Proclamations for Continuing Victory The truths I have been sharing in this book are much more than the outcome of an intellectual pursuit of knowledge in the abstract. On the contrary, I have mined them out of intense, persistent prayer and spiritual conflict in which Ruth and I have shared together for at least three years. Every main truth unfolded in this book has been subjected first to the test of our own experience. I have not felt free to pass on to others theories that have not worked for us. In the previous chapter, I explained how proclamation, thanksgiving, and praise, working together, can release into our lives the promised blessings of God. In this chapter, I am going to share briefly how Ruth and I have been learning to apply this principle in our own lives. The regular practice of proclaiming God's Word, and then thanking and praising Him for it, has become an integral part of our personal spiritual discipline. We regard this as one of the most valuable truths that God has opened to us from the Scriptures. God has led us to establish a central bank of Scriptures, which we have memorized and which we draw upon in our times of prayer or whenever we become involved in spiritual conflict. Proclaiming these in faith invariably releases corresponding expressions of thanksgiving and praise. Normally we speak these out loud, alone or together. We are not talking to one another, however, nor to the walls or the ceiling of our room. 
we are speaking to a vast, invisible world of spirit things. First of all, to God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and then to all the heavenly beings who worship and serve God, and who have been appointed ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14. We are also conscious that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, made up of the saints of all ages, who have victoriously completed their earthly pilgrimage. See Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. We believe that this is a legitimate application of Hebrews chapter 12 verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Also included in our audience, however, are Satan and all the evil angels and other demonic beings under his control. These operate in a new way, exactly opposite to God's ministering angels. Their purpose is to inflict every form of harm and evil on the entire human race, but first and foremost on those who are serving the true God. In this context, our proclamation has two effects. On the one hand, it evokes on our behalf the help of God and His angels. On the other hand, it protects us from the schemes and assaults of Satan and his demonic forces. This form of proclamation is continually building up our faith. According to Romans chapter 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing the word, the rima, the spoken word, of God. Hearing others speak God's word is helpful, but hearing ourselves speak it is even more effective. As we both speak and hear, both edges of the sword of God's word are at work in us simultaneously. See Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. Finally, when we make the same proclamation together in harmony, supernatural power is released. Jesus says, If two of you will agree, harmonize, concerning anything, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 18 verse 19. The power of one believer making a proclamation on his own is tremendous. But the power of two or more making the same proclamation together in harmony increases by geometric progression. There are many times and situations, of course, when it would be out of place to make a proclamation out loud. The alternative is to make the same proclamation inaudibly in one's mind. Inaudible words can also make a powerful impact on the spiritual realm. This is probably the most effective way to deal with lies and accusations with which the enemy bombards our minds. The mind is the main field of battle in all conflicts of this kind. When our minds are actively responding to the word, we are proclaiming inwardly, no room is left for the enemy's negative thoughts and insinuations. In all of this, however, we must be careful to recognize our continuing dependence on the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, the carnal mind can reduce these principles to a system in which God plays the role of a 
heavenly vending machine. We simply insert the right proclamation, and out comes any brand of carnal gratification that we select. Obviously, this is a caricature of a believer's relationship with God. There may be a wide gap between the way we view ourselves and the way the Holy Spirit views us. We may be conscious of what we want, whereas the Holy Spirit sees what we need. He alone can be trusted to direct each of us to the type of proclamation that applies to our individual situation and level of faith. In this way, God can accomplish His purpose in our lives. With this caution, I feel it would be helpful for me to list on the following pages, simply as patterns, some of the proclamations that Ruth and I make regularly, together with the situations in which they would be appropriate. So far as possible, we personalize the scriptures we quote. For instance, if a statement is addressed to believers and introduced with the pronoun "you," we normally change it to "I" or "we." And also make any other grammatical changes that are indicated. My list opens with scriptures that are directly connected with the theme of this book, but continues with others that have a more general application. Some comments and words of explanation are interspersed. In each case, the relevant scripture reference is given. One, as a result of praying the prayer of release from curses, see chapter eighteen, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I have passed out from under the curse and entered into the blessing of Abraham, whom God blessed in all things, is based on Galatians chapter three verses thirteen and fourteen. Ruth has received release from many curses over her life, but she has had a continuing battle walking it out in experience. This proclamation has therefore become particularly significant for us. We often make it several times in a day. Over the past two or three years, we have repeated these words many hundreds of times. Each time we do so, we move further away from effects of curses and into the blessing that is our inheritance. Two, when becoming aware of negative forces directed against us, either from servants of Satan or from soulish utterances of Christians, see chapters thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against me in judgment, I do now condemn. This is my heritage, my inheritance right, as a servant of the Lord, and my righteousness is from you, O Lord. Is based on Isaiah chapter fifty-four, verse seventeen. There are two important points to note in connection with this proclamation. First, we are not directed to ask God to condemn any tongue that speaks against us. God has given us the authority to do this for ourselves, and He expects us to exercise it. Second, our right to exercise this authority depends on the fact that we are not acting out of our own righteousness, but because God's righteousness is imputed to us on the basis of our faith. Clearly, this proceeds out of the exchange by which Jesus on the cross was made sin with our sinfulness, that we might become righteous with His righteousness. The various benefits of that exchange are all interrelated and should not be separated from each other. But God requires more of us than just turning back the evil words spoken against us. After that, He instructs us to forgive those who seek to harm us. Finally, He expects us to move from the negative to the positive.
to respond to a curse with a blessing, blessing those who curse us, just like forgiving those who harm us, does not depend on our emotions. It proceeds from a firm decision of our will, made in obedience to God's word. Here is a suitable form of words that covers both forgiving and blessing. Lord, I forgive all who have spoken evil against me, and having forgiven them, I bless them in Your name. Altogether, we need to follow three successive steps in responding to those who curse us. First, we condemn the tongue that has uttered the curse. Second, we forgive the person from whom the curse proceeded. Third, we ask God to bless the person. By carrying out these three steps, we can dissipate any spiritual darkness or heaviness that a curse has brought on us. Three, when pressures of sin or guilt or unworthiness pursue us from our past, I am in Christ, and therefore I am a new creation. All those old things have passed away. Everything in my life has become new. And everything is from God, based on Second Corinthians chapter five, verses seventeen and eighteen. God accepts total responsibility for the new creation. It is all His doing. Nothing is carried over from the old creation, which has been marred and corrupted by sin. When the past reasserts its claim over us, we need to meditate on the picture John gives us in Revelation chapter twenty-one, verse five. Then he who sat on the throne said, "Behold, I make all things new." And he said to me, "Write, for these words are true and faithful. These words come from the one who sits on the throne, the one who has under his control the entire universe and everything in it. That includes every detail of our lives." He reaffirms that he makes everything new. It seems that John might have wondered inwardly whether this was too stupendous a claim, even for God, but the Lord assures him, "Right, for these words are true and faithful." It is as if he says, "Yes, John, you really can assure my people, I do exactly what I say." For, when oppressed by hopelessness and gloomy forebodings of death, I will not die but live. And will proclaim what the Lord has done. Psalm chapter one eighteen verse seventeen. Of course, this does not mean I will never die, but only I will not die before God's appointed time. I will not allow myself to be murdered by Satan. Proclaimed with faith and understanding, this verse can deliver and protect those who are assailed by the spirit of death. It can be used to revoke the negative utterances by which people expose themselves to that spirit. For example, see chapter twelve. For some people, it may be necessary to repeat this proclamation many times over until it becomes more real than all the previous negative thought patterns. Remember that Jesus required Peter to reaffirm his love for him just as many times as he had previously denied him. Five. When assailed by physical sickness or infirmity, Jesus Himself bore my sins in His own body on the tree, that I, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By whose wounds I was healed, is based on First Peter chapter two verse twenty-four.
I have also prepared the following special proclamation, which combines truths from many different scriptures and which has helped Christians in many areas of the world. My body is a temple for the Holy Spirit, redeemed, cleansed, and sanctified by the blood of Jesus. My members, the parts of my body, are instruments of righteousness presented to God for His service and for His glory. The devil has no place in me, no power over me, no unsettled claims against me. All has been settled by the blood of Jesus. I overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of my testimony, and I do not love my life to the death. My body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for my body. This is based on 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, 1 John chapter 1 verse 7, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12, Romans chapter 6 verse 13, and chapter 8 verses 33 and 34, Revelation chapter 12 verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 13. Someone might ask, Is it honest for me to make proclamations such as these? when I see in my body the physical evidence of sickness, or when I feel in my soul the oppositions of sin? The answer depends on your point of view. If you are looking at yourself in your own natural condition, then it is not honest. But if you are looking at yourself as God sees you in Christ, then you have the right to make such a proclamation. Once we have repented of our sins and committed ourselves to Christ, God no longer looks at us as we are in our natural state. Instead, He looks at us from the perspective of the exchange that took place on the cross. Spiritually, He sees us as made righteous. Physically, He sees us as made whole. It is significant that in the Scriptures, the healing provided through the sacrifice of Jesus is never spoken of in the future tense. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, written more than 700 years before the death of Jesus. Healing is already presented as an accomplished fact. By his wounds we are healed. In the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, the apostle refers to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, but uses the past tense, by whose stripes you were healed. When the words we speak about ourselves agree with what God says about us in Christ, then we open the way for Him to make us, in actual experience, all that He says we are. But if we fail to make the appropriate confession or proclamation about ourselves, we are confined to the prison of our own natural state. We have shut ourselves off from the supernatural transforming grace of God, which works only through faith. Again, someone might ask, what about someone who says and does all the right things, and yet the promised results do not follow? An answer is to be found in the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The reason some people do not receive some part of the promised blessings often belongs in the category of secret things. It is vain for us to seek to pry to God's secrets from Him. It is also irreverent. If God withholds an answer, it is more important to trust than to understand. On the other hand, the words of Moses remind us of our responsibility as God's people 
to believe, to proclaim, and to act upon those things he has clearly revealed in his word. Central to these is the provision God has made for us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We must not let our concern about the secret things keep us from believing and obeying the things that are revealed. 6. When Satan attacks an area for which God holds us responsible, our home, our family, our business, our ministry, etc., the bolts of our gates will be iron and bronze, and our strength will equal our days. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun, who rides on the heavens to help us, and on the clouds in his majesty. The eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out our enemy before us, saying, Destroy him! This is based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 25 through 27. By this proclamation, we are enabled to move from defense to attack. First of all, our gates represent our defense system. God promises that this will be strong enough to keep out our enemy's attack. Then there is a wonderful picture of God intervening supernaturally on our behalf. He rides on the heavens to help us. Our proclamation is one way that we invoke his intervention. Finally, there is the assurance of our enemy's defeat. He, God, will drive out our enemy before us. God requires us to play our part in this final stage. Therefore, he says, destroy him. He has equipped us with the spiritual weapons we need to do this. 7. When we awaken to the realization that the mind is a battlefield, in which the lies of Satan are at war with the truths of God's word. The weapons of my warfare are mighty in God. With them I pull down the strongholds that Satan has built in my mind. I bring all my thoughts into obedience to Christ. Three of my mightiest weapons are proclamation, thanksgiving, and praise. Is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. It is important to remember, however, that our enemies in the Christian life are not our fellow human beings. Our enemies are the vile spiritual forces directed against us from the kingdom of Satan. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against persons without bodies, the evil rulers of the unseen world, and against huge numbers of wicked spirits in the spirit world. In this strange kind of warfare to which God has called us, the standards of measurement are different from those we use in the world of the senses. Measured by the spiritual scale, forgiving is stronger than resenting. Blessing is stronger than cursing. Giving thanks is stronger than complaining. Praise is stronger than accusation. And loving is stronger than hating. Based on this paradox, here are two proclamations that unlock God's strength and God's enabling when our own resources fail. 8. When confronted by a task too big for me. I can do all things through the one who empowers me within, is based on Philippians chapter 4 verse 13. 9. When my own strength fails or is insufficient. God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. And so, when I am weak, then I am strong. 
is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Finally, here are two proclamations that cover needs that arise at some time or other in the lives of almost all of us. 10. When exercising faith for financial needs. God is able to make all grace abound toward us, that we, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. The level of God's provision for His people is revealed as abundance, not mere sufficiency. Ruth and I make this proclamation regularly as the financial base for Derek Prince Ministries. 11. When assailed by fear. God has not given me a spirit to fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Is based on 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. In the name of Jesus I submit to God, and I resist the spirit of fear. Therefore it has to flee from me. Is based on James chapter 4, verse 7. The previous scriptures are only a few examples. There is no limit to the number of scriptural proclamations we can make. Each of us must rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us to those that suit our particular situations. Choosing and making appropriate proclamations based on Scripture has one very important result. We receive and apply God's Word in the active, not the passive, mode. We no longer just read a Scripture and then pass on. Instead, we go through three successive stages. First, we ask the Holy Spirit to direct us to Scriptures that are especially appropriate for us. Second, we fix them firmly in our minds. Third, by proclaiming them, we release their power into the areas of our lives where we need them. Perhaps you are one of the many Christians today who feel the need to take the sword of the Spirit, referred to in chapter 19, but do not know of a simple and practical way to do this. If so, Ruth and I would like to recommend to you this method of selective proclamation of scriptures. We have practiced it in our own lives, and we can say it works. But let me add one final word of warning. Do not put your faith in your proclamation or in any other method or procedure. Our faith must be in God alone, not in anyone or anything else. Our proclamation is merely an effective way to express the faith we have in God. So now, as you set your face toward the land of God's blessings, receive the admonition given three times to Joshua. Be strong and of good courage.